the evening talk. I would like to, the evening talk to be in the form of a <coughs> commentary on some of the uh, writings of uh, Rilke. And Reina Maria Rilke, whose life was spent from 1875 to 1926, wrote quite extensively and both <coughs> in the form of his poetry and I understand that in one three-week period of his life he actually in a particularly uh, extensive outpouring of uh, create, particularly creative poetry he wrote some 1600 lines and Rilke too his letters too convey and communicate, I think, very profound messages, teachings to all of us. And in recent years, and especially, I notice amongst those of us who engage in spiritual work, in contemplations, in these forms of teachings, have felt a particularly warm and close affinity with, with Rilke and what he has to say to say to all of us. And <coughs> the translation by a man named John Mood and has put together a collection of letters and poetry and the letters and poetry communicate his awarenesses and a remarkable depths of awarenesses and the book is under the general title of Love and Other Difficulties. <coughs> and I have read through this uh, book on a number of occasions recently, and what I simply did, I've just made a, a pencil mark on a number of passages, and if I may, I would like to give some commentary to them. And in the very beginning, in one of the early passages in this book, Rilke says, I tell you that I have a long way to go before I am where one begins. You are so young, so before all beginning, and I want to beg you as much as I can to be patient towards all that is unresolved in your heart and to try to love the questions themselves <coughs> like locked rooms and like books that are written in a very foreign tongue. Do not now seek the answers which cannot be given you because you would not be able to live them. And the point is to live everything. Live the questions now. Perhaps you will then gradually, without noticing it, live along some distant day into the answer. And I think Rilke is truly directing us too in his letter and, and poetry to a way of being in the world which 
Two things perhaps are significant for us as people of the earth. One is not to be afraid to ask questions and to keep faith with questioning mind, with a heart of inquiry and to ask and to ask again. And of course to ask, as he would point out, to ask questions which matter. And sometimes in our life we have certainly cultivated and developed a, a questioning mind. But perhaps we have lacked the questioning heart. And unlike with the questioning mind, we can find solutions and come to answers. But with the questioning heart, perhaps the question is the profound. And out of that can emerge for you and I responses to life which are related to the questioning rather than related to, to having our answers. And so he says, I beg you as much as I can to be patient to all, towards all that is unsolved in your heart and to try to love the questions themselves. And two of the forms of questions which we observe in ourselves show themselves at the very formation of the question. The very bringing in of the question for us is such that we often start with why. Why is this like this? Why is this occurring? Why is my heart experiencing what it is what it is experiencing. And sometimes in the question, sometimes in the pain, in the confusion which, are, which arises in, inside of us, that persistence of that question in a way that has faith to cut through with the question itself. And sometimes we find again and again with heartful questions, answers don't come. Sometimes when, we're, when our heartful questions are difficult and during the days that we've been here together we've noticed and observed with ourselves difficulties of the heart, difficulties of our relationship to the world that we live in and sometimes the form of question which arises is not so much the why question but it's the how question. How can I deal with this? How can I cope with this? How can I accommodate this? How can I accept this, whatever this may be? And sometimes it's quite appropriate for us and quite, quite necessary out of the heartful question to find some ways, some methods, some approaches and avenues for us to help us deal with the harsh truth of some of those questions which we face about our life and our life and relationship with each other, which particularly Rilke uh, focuses on. And so w when the questioning is arising in our days here and elsewhere, please give care and attention to what's the, what formation is the question taken? Is it a how question? Is it a why question? Is it a what question? Is it a wondering, what is it that I have to understand from this experience? What is it that this has to, needs to tell 
to me and reveal to me. And so this, as I mentioned, forms the beginning, one of the beginning quotes from this book on uh, Rilke. And then Rilke, in the letters of love, and in his con continuation of that, he speaks of many aspects of human relationship, the way that you and I and people with each other relate to each other. And he speaks very insightfully of re intimate relationship, personal relationship. And one of the features and characteristics of Rilke's poetry is not only the depth of sensitivity which he is able to communicate through the, through the language, not only the, the poetry itself, but I think the insights and the sensuality which accompanies it. And one of the, one of the poets for us which says, in a way, let life, let life really be integrated. Let there be a real marriage of life, a marriage we, we might say of the spiritual and the sensual the religious and the flesh, which has been a constant conflict in spiritual life. And I think Rilke's poetry says much to all of us, and especially of our time and generation. And in, the, in his writings, he says here of, in a way he speaks of what the promise has frequently been with regard to marriage, communion, par partnership. He says, there are relation, he speaks of certain relationships. There are certain relationships which must be a very great, almost unbearable happiness, but they can only occur between people who are composed, he said, and full in and of themselves. And he says, what frequently happens is in our relationship and in our communication with each other, we bring in the love and affection for another, as it were, parts of ourselves. And we expect the different parts of one human being relating to another human being to really meet together. And what we notice in ourselves, and as he points, points out in some of the poetry, how, and there's a teachings to it too, how the love moves and it connects and desire accompanies it. And how with the love and the desire, the love and the demand, one then has love and other difficulties. And we know this constant struggle in human relationship and human communication and sometimes the way that it shows itself between to people, it shows itself in space and in need. One wishes for greater space in her or his life and to feel a greater sense of space. And the, the other, the partner, the close friend, the relative, whoever, it's for need, the need for more contact, the need for more inter intimacy of connection. And sometimes it's this huge human struggle taking place between one who needs, who says, it's space, need more space, and the other says, I have need for contact, I have need for greater closeness. And the reconciliation, the uh, harmonizing the understanding of these two 
common features of our society seem to only come by some actual understanding of each other. And then Rilke, in speaking of these various themes, in a way makes a beautiful and rather wonderful radical statement. He says, I hold this to be the highest task of a bond between two people, that each should stand guard over the solitude of the other. I hold this to be the highest task of a bond between two people, that each should stand guard over the solitude of the other. And I think in spiritual life and awarenesses in our life that this statement perhaps never really deeply occurs to us of the profound and liberating and loving communication that is born of such a statement. And I think in our life we truly need to realize that the, the close one, the intimate, the partner, whoever he, she, they may be, cannot possibly be of such order for any of us in life that that person provides all for ourselves. And I think in our relationship to each other, if there's an attitude, an outlook of mind of standing guard over each other's solitude, respecting each other's solitude, and the, and the right to that. Perhaps in that there is some opportunity for space, and in that opportunity for space there's some opportunity for real, real communication. Then, then going further in the, these, these passages, He says, says, it is a question in marriage, to my feeling, not of creating a quick community of spirit by tearing down and destroying, destroying all boundaries, but rather a good marriage is that in which each appoints the other guardian of his or her solitude and shows him this confidence, the greatest in his power or her to bestow. Then he continues, a togetherness between two people is an impossibility, and where it seems nevertheless to exist, it is a narrowing, a reciprocal agreement which robs either one party or both of their fullest freedom and development. Tough message. But once the realization is accepted that even between the closest human beings infinite distances continue to exist a wonderful living side by side can grow up understand in a relationship we frequently ex expect that the relationship the togetherness will provide everything 
one begins to see in the relationship, in the communication, there are areas of distances. And he says that these dif distances, infinite distances, continue to exist. And he says, once the, realize, once the realization is accepted of these infinite distances, a wonderful living side by side can take place. Therefore, this too must be the standard for rejection or choice. Whether one is willing to stand guard over the solitude of a person and whether one is inclined to set the same person at the gate of one's own solitude, of which he learns only through that which steps festively clothed out of the great darkness. In other words, the way I would interpret it, that is that in our relationship with each other and the closest of relationships, in the very activity of the communion, to acknowledge and to be aware of the other's solitude in those moments, of one's own solitude, and the recognition of the infinite distances manifesting between two human beings because we cannot have total intimacy if we understand that, he says, we step out of the great darkness. Rilke then goes on and he says, Love is something difficult, and it is more difficult than other things because in other conflicts, nature herself enjoins people to collect themselves, to take themselves firmly in hand with all their strength. While in the heightening of love, the impulse is to give oneself wholly away. Let me recall a, a situation in this uh, area of standing guard over one's solitude and the solitude of another. Earlier in the year, Henrietta and I were in India and we were teaching a retreat there in the Budgaya. And one person on the retreat was experiencing a torturous time, morning, noon and night. He was utterly unable to sleep and was in terrible fear. And I um, met with him and we talked together and then he relayed to me the incident which was the spark for this uh, fear. And in fact it was, it was fear but it was fear in the form of jealousy. And what had occurred was he had, tra had travelled from continental Europe and he had left his partner, with whom he had been for several years uh, behind, and he decided, since a telephone, the first, um, incidentally, in Budgaya, had turned up in the village at the post office, that he would telephone his 
partner and uh, say hello and say that he was fine. He told me that he'd completely overlooked the time uh, change, which is about six hours between um, India and uh, his uh, home country. The phone rang in the, uh, uh, in the middle or late middle of the night, he told me, four or five o'clock in the morning. And when the phone answered, his partner, his uh, uh, girlfriend, was very, very uncommunicative. And, oh, hi, uh, well, and can you ring back later on? I'm tired, blah, 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 and put the phone down. And he immediately came to the conclusion that there was a man in her bed and that she couldn't wait to get the phone down because of that. And he was fraught with pain and, and jealousy and anxiety and fear and was sitting, walking, spending the whole day in, in this state. And one sees with, with jealousy, too, and the, and the potency of jealousy, that it surely is one of the most painful emotional sensations, experiences, to feel jealous, which means in the, the loss of another whose attention is going to somebody else and one actual or imagined, there's that feeling of pain and loss and the jealousy which just cuts deep in the human heart. So we talked about this. And I asked him, how do you know it's a fact? He said, I'm sure, I'm sure, I'm sure, I'm sure. I just could tell from her voice, etc. And I said, and some of you as well, that sometimes I receive uh, phone calls and they sometimes people too forget the time change, they put the hours on instead of behind and things like that. And the phone rings and, and someone says, Hi, Christopher, how are you? So I said, perhaps there's no evidence other than your imagination. So the agreement was he would go back to the, the phone in the post office in Budgaya, telephone at a decent time, and speak and actually ask. Get the information up front, what's actually going here? least find out what the truth is rather than live in a state of not knowing and all the jealousy and anxiety which accompanies it. And I think in that, of course, the situation, he got complete reassurance that she was just tired and whatever. I think jealousy is perhaps, amongst the many factors of it, we have forgotten to stand guard over the other's solitude. Love is something difficult, and it's more difficult than other things because in other conflict, nature herself enjoins people to collect themselves, to take themselves firmly in hand with all their strength, while in the heightening of love, the impulse is to give oneself wholly away. But just think, says Rilke, 
can that be anything beautiful to give oneself away, not as something whole and ordered, but haphazard, rather bit by bit as it comes. <laughs> and I think sometimes with us in relationship and in the closeness of something, someone that one loves, one has inside of oneself the idealized view. I'm going to give myself wholly to him, wholly to her, wholly to whatever that one, one loves. Can such giving away <laughs> can such giving away that looks so like a throwing away and dismemberment be anything good? And I think sometimes, again, there's this kind of, as it were, wanting to make her a huge gesture of sacrifice. And what we forget in that kind of sacrifice when it involves another, that actually we, what we might be putting on the other is the whole of ourself. And perhaps he, she, they don't want it. When you give, he says a rather beautiful analogy, when you give someone flowers, you arrange them beforehand, don't you? Love is at first not anything that means merging, giving over, and uniting with another. For what would be a union of something unclarified, unfinished, and subordinate? Love is at first not anything that means merging, giving over, and uniting with another. For what would a what would a union be of something unclarified, unfinished, still subordinate. And I think in the human communications and in, in our explorations which take place with each other in life, I think that relationship of oneself to others and in that giving over that takes, easily takes place, we may forget in the neglect of the guardian of each other's solitude, one or other in some way becomes subordinate. In some way we just haven't understood what love is. And so when, with our relationship, though I question some of Rilke's conclusions, it's not surprising that the view which one finished with, so to speak, that love is difficult. I'm not sure whether love is difficult. I'm not sure whether love ever has been difficult in the love itself. But the relationship in the expression of the love or the unexpression of the love, hence therein comes the difficulty. And certainly, easily 
happens for us in the communicating of love, warmth, kindness, affection, gratitude, generosity, in the giving over to another. When that giving is taking place and the formations of giving are occurring, how easily it is for us that in the formation of the dependency one ends up tragically doubting one's capacity to love. And one is forgetting and neglecting that with love can also, in the very transfusion of it, the very communication of it, carry the intimacies of the habits, the patterns, the need, flowing with the love. And it's a tragedy for us when we, say, when we start doubting our capacity to love. just like to move on to some of the poetry of Rilke. Sense with the, po- the poems of Rilke, not only is the depth and the, the sensuality and the love which is being explored through, through the poetry, but something of the, the poetry, like many things in life, if we could just take a, a verse, a line, a passage to heart and allow ourselves to explore just a few lines deeply in our life, the exploration of those few lines in a heartful way can be remarkably transforming. Just through taking a line, a sentence, a, a passage, and there's been a long-standing tradition, spiritual tradition, of just taking something and letting it rest, and rest deeply with us, so that the potency of it has some transforming influence in our life. And I wonder, in our daily life, how much opportunity do we have for poetry? How much opportunity is there for us just to stop and to take a few lines and allow ourselves to reflect on those? How much opportunity is there for communicating, for writing poetry? And I think sometimes, and as Rook points out so, ex- so exquisitely in his... Uh, passages, the importance of an expansive life experience to understand the potency of the written word when it's attempting, or spoken word, when it's attempting to communicate something deep. The importance and the value of an expansive life experience as a way of being receptive to, to hearing or reading something which is profound and deep. And sometimes we are in our questioning, in that questioning heart, as I said at the beginning of the talk, sometimes we may have to ask ourselves the question, am I living a shallow life? Am I living superficially? Am I living as a kind of imitation of, of streams of other people? Am I living to somehow fulfill the, the wishes of my parents and my educators? Am I living as a, a second-hand human being? An effect of other people's expectations. 
And it's not that, you know, broadening, deepening of our life experience that we have to go miles, we have to travel the world, we have to have a whole variety of lifestyles, but within the very context of our home life, in the very context of what's happening in, in the world around us, to have exposure to that. How often does one go to meetings and hear of people's circumstances and situations? How often does one find oneself really committed to experiencing the nature? How often does one go to places where there, are, where there is suffering and pain? How often does one take to time to watch the children playing in the school playground? Many facets of a broadening life experience and, to, and the, the commitment to that so that sometimes the relationship and the job and the money truly, truly, from a poetic standpoint and a spiritual standpoint for us, truly recede into the background. And I think that is an active re revolt, a rebellion against the enormous pressure of circumstances which says relationship matters, money matters, the career matter. And I think we need to revolt against that. To see that has a usefulness and a function and a place, but never such a function that it overshadows the poetry of life. Life and death, they are one, at core entwined. Who understands himself from his own strain, presses himself into a drop of wine, and throws himself into the purest flame. And this verse written by Rilke, Christmas 1922. Life and death, they are one, at core entwined. Who understands himself from his own strain, presses himself into a drop of wine, and throws himself into the purest flame. In a way, the heart of the teachings, in a way, are perhaps summarized in that single verse. Who understands himself from his own strain, himself or herself, from his, from his or her own strain. And I think sometimes with, our, with ourselves and the strain of ourselves, of our life, of our culture, of all that fashions and makes up our life, that in a way, in the situation here, walking and sitting and examining and exploring and looking into, perhaps we are pressing ourselves into a drop of wine. Perhaps we're undergoing some kind of change and transformation. One of our poets in Britain, Lord Byron, was sitting to take an examination 
I believe, at Oxford University. And he was asked to give a commentary on the story of Jesus when Jesus went to the wedding ceremony and at the wedding ceremony the, the wine ran out and it is said that there Jesus performed his first miracle and he took the water and he transferred changed and threw the power of the water into wine it's regarded as the first miracle that he performed during the examination while it, the students were scrupulously writing down uh, and writing about this uh, miracle in this uh, religious test young Lord Byron was just sitting there daydreaming mind looking around and having no interest in this particular passage come towards the end of the examination period the examiner sitting at the beginning of the hall couldn't understand why Byron took such little interest and walked down to Byron and Byron and I said to him no, you, you haven't done anything then Byron picked up a pen and he wrote a single sentence he said he wrote the water saw its master and blushed <laughs> and I think in transformation in the change in the human capacity in the miraculous capacity capacity of human beings to change not only is that change the transformation of consciousness but it's the transformation of the whole way that we see the world the very orderliness of the water of life miraculously is transformed into the wine Who understands himself from his or her own strain presses himself, herself, into a drop of wine and throws himself, herself, into the purest flame. Rilke uses me in his poetry and in these statements which he makes, as I mentioned before, the importance and the significance of expression, of the relationship of language to life, to sensuality, to deep feelings. He said such deep feelings, he uses a beautiful term, he speaks of it as such deep feelings, he speaks of it as blood remembering. But sometimes we are so into our brain remembering, into the acquisition and the collection of knowledge. We think, and the huge deception for us as human beings is that we think we know through the acquisition of information, through the acquisition of the knowledge. 
and we put undue stress and pressure on the brain and the tragedy of the deception is that the knowledge does nothing to alleviate the blindness nothing to alleviate the ignorance, the darkness and yet we've put our faith, misplaced faith into, the, into brain knowledge and Rilke speaks of going much deeper than that and in such a, a deep way that we, he speaks of blood remembering blood knowing, blood sensing, blood, blood feeling and he makes a, 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 uh, some criticism of the young and I think the young, not so much, I hope anyway, not so much in terms of age but young in life he said, ah but verses amount to so little when one writes them young one ought to wait and gather sense and sweetness a whole life long and a long life if possible and then quite at the end one might perhaps be able to write ten lines that were good for verses are not as people imagine simply feelings those one has early enough they are experiences for the sake of a single verse one must see many cities, men's and things. One must know the animals. One must feel how the birds fly and know the gesture with which the little flowers open in the morning. One must be able to think back to roads in unknown regions, to unexpected meetings and to partings one had long seen coming, to days of childhood that are still unexplained, to parents whom one had to hurt when they brought one some joy and one did not grasp it. It was a joy for someone else. To childhood illnesses that so strangely begin with such a number of profound and grave transformations. To days in rooms withdrawn and quiet and to mornings by the sea, to the sea itself, to seas, to nights of travel that rushed along and high and flew with all the stars. And it's not enough Yet enough, if one may think all of this, one must have memories of many nights of love, none of which was like the others, of the screams of women in labour and of light, white, sleeping women in childbed closing again. But one must also have been beside the dying, must have sat beside the bed in the room with the open window and the fitful noises. And still it is not enough to have memories, one must be able to forget them, when there are many, and one must have the great patience to wait until they come again. For it is not yet the memories themselves, not till they have turned to blood within us, to glance and gesture, nameless, and no longer to be distinguished from ourselves. Not till then can it happen that in a most rare hour, the first word of a verse arises in their midst, and goes forth from them. So in the diversity of our experiences, in the support of our memories, in our awarenesses of the cities and the animals and the birds and the flowers, in all of that, out of that experience, out of the depths of that, out of our life, then can come the first word of a verse. 
At the end of his life, he died aged 51, before his death, Rilke wrote his own epitaph. Some 15 months, it is said, before he died. And he requested that what he wrote be inscribed on his gravestone. And this, the author says, was done in the Rhone Valley in southwest Switzerland. And the epitaph reads, Rose, O pure contradiction, desire, to be no one's sleep under so many lids. Rose, O pure contradiction, desire, to be no one's sleep under so many lids. Rose, which is frequently used to, in the life of the poet to try to express the, as he says, the contradiction. There is the rose and the very rose reveals the thorn. And the manifestation of the rose is equally, it shows the manifestation of the thorn. And so not surprisingly in our life when we think of love love for another, love for whoever. So easily the rose appears and the thorn begin to re- reveal themselves. And the thorn shows itself in many forms and sometimes it shows in desire on what we expect others to be, what we cannot be. He says then, to be no one's sleep under so many lids. To be no one's sleep under so many lids. And I can't help wondering if he's not alluding back to the original statement to be a guardian of each other's solitude. I can't help wondering perhaps if Rilke is saying to us in the, the wonder of connection and, and depth of feeling and depth of love and sensuality that if we don't understand it we'll live like the rose with the thorn and we will fall asleep under the eyelids of another He says, finally, lovers, he said, true lovers, in all the way that that's been phrased, being full of life are full of death. So deep is death implanted in the nature of love that it nowhere contradicts love.
I think if we were just to take a few words, a line of Rilke and many other poets of past and present, and we were to say to ourselves, let the poetry of life truly matter. Let me not forget the ordinary and the everyday. Let me look with awakened eyes, so like Jesus and others before and after can really transmute the water into wine. May all beings be in touch with the unfoldment of life. May all beings be in touch with the wonder of things. May all beings be touched with the poetry of our existence.